What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today, it is my honor to have spoken with Lindsay Fitzharris. All right. She is an amazing, amazing woman, a best-selling author, and she has a brand new book that comes out at the time of releasing this. It'll be out next week on June 7th. But before I dive into that and introduce our conversation real quick, if you're new here, make sure you subscribe, make sure you're following the podcast. I love reading nonfiction books. I read hundreds of them a year. I just love to learn and I'm curious about so many different topics and I bring authors on to chat about them. So if you're interested in that, make sure you're subscribed, make sure you're following. And for all of you out there who are longtime listeners on the podcast, if you're not yet, make sure you follow me over on social media. It's at The Rewired Soul over on Instagram and Twitter. I dabble just a little bit in TikTok, doing little short book reviews and stuff like that. Anyways, make sure you follow me on social media. One, I love talking with all of you. I get great book recommendations and just have interesting conversations. And two, that way you don't miss any upcoming episodes or other content like my writing and stuff like that. So make sure you're following me. All right. But anyways, anyways, let's get back to the main event which is Lindsay Fitzharris, all right? So Lindsay is a best-selling author of a book called The Butchering Art, which I have not read yet. But anyways, uh, her publisher reached out and asked me if I would like a review copy of her new book, The Face Baker. So this is about the, uh, the man who kind of started uh, the whole type of surgery for like facial reconstruction, which led to like plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery, and all that kind of stuff. And Lindsay, she'll explain it a little bit better than I am, but she is a, a medical like historian, right? And she's actually, you know, she is a doctor. She'll explain she's not like that type of doctor. <laughs> but anyways, I'm, I'm typically not into like books about history and stuff like that, but I absolutely love this book. She's an amazing writer. And I actually learned about Lindsay from a previous guest, the wonderful Mary Roach. And she's like talked about Lindsay's books being like very gory and everything like that. And yeah, so if you're into that stuff, you will absolutely love this book. But anyways, in our conversation, we talk about, you know, the book and how Lindsay did the research and like poured through all these like old journals and everything from like World War One soldiers and all these other things. But we also talk a lot about, you know, mental health, right? And different biases and prejudices, because something we often don't think of is like, facial injuries are are just like very stigmatized and we don't really think about that but it, it's it's something that you know like imagine somebody who's like an amputee right compare that to a public reaction of somebody who's had their face damage so she covers a lot of that in the book and some of the conversations that were happening back then but it was interesting talking with her about these topics as well so anyways it's a fantastic book so do yourself a favor head down in the description if you're listening to this uh, you know, before the book comes out, make sure you pre-order it. I've linked it down below. Uh, if not, it is out June 7th. So make sure you grab a copy. And I've also linked uh, Lindsay's Instagram and Twitter in the description. So make sure you give her a follow and all that good stuff. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris about her brand new book, The Facemaker. All right. Hello, Lindsay. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. I'm sorry to disappoint you with my Chicago accent. You thought <laughs> I was British. <laughs> yeah, I, I have no idea where that came from. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Did, did your other book take like take place in Britain? Was it about somebody British? Is that what it was? Well, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I live in Britain, so I'm coming to you oh. from Britain at the moment. Yeah, I've lived here for 20 years and oh. I went to Oxford. I went to Oxford University. They couldn't beat the Chicago out of me. Got so. it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I wasn't completely crazy. No. So. <laughs> so what made you look to Britain, by the way? 
I, I went, I came over here to do my master's, and my PhD in the history of science and medicine. And I just loved it. I love being here. It's like living in history over here. So, but it's yeah. funny because I, I think a lot of audiences now do think I'm British. So when I go back to the US, especially if, you know, it's like a big event and they introduce me and I have this degree from Oxford and then I open my mouth and it's yeah. this accent and everybody's really upset and sad. They're like, <laughs> oh. Yeah. So I'm, so I'm not the only one. I feel a little no. bit, I feel a little bit better, but but aside, aside uh, from, yeah, being in Britain for the last 20 years, for those who are unfamiliar with you and your work, can you introduce yourself to my lovely audience real quick? Yeah. So I'm Dr. Lindsay Pateras, not the kind of doctor that can save your life, but I could tell you how doctors used to do it in the past. I'm a medical historian, um, although these days I like to call myself a storyteller. And mm. so my first book, The Butchering Art, is about a Victorian surgeon named Joseph Lister, who you might know through Listerine. Uh, something he didn't even create and wasn't even used as a mouthwash in the 19th century. It was used to treat gonorrhea. Uh, so mm. fun fact there, don't use it for that today, please. <laughs> a little, little bit of a warning that doesn't work. Um, and my new book, The Face Maker, is about the pioneering surgeon Harold Gillies who rebuilt soldiers' faces during the First World War. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, as I was mentioning, I just finished it. You and your publisher were kind enough to send me an early copy. And yeah, I guess I guess one of the first things I wanted to ask you is like, how did you decide on this topic or Harold Gillies in general? Like, yeah. was it something you like came across and something you were curious about? How did this book come to fruition? Yeah, well, as I said, you know, I'm a medical historian, but I do call myself a storyteller these days. So I kind of go where the story is. And mm. I knew nothing about the First World War. I mean, I was literally starting at why did this conflict even begin? This is why it took me five years to research and write, by the way. And um. Uh, but I knew a little bit about Gillies because of my training. And I knew that there was a really good war story there, that there was a really mm. human story. And I mean, it's it's crazy, too, because, you know, we're seeing the return of old school warfare in Ukraine at the moment. And so mm. there's a lot of questions about the damage it does to human bodies. And so I hope that people will pick up the face maker and actually see it as quite relevant for today's uh, news lessons as well. Yeah, you know, uh, I guess I guess that leads into one of the questions I've been meaning to ask you because, like, my whole thing, like, I'm I'm more into uh, like psychology and stuff. Like, mm. my mom is that kind of doctor and everything. But in the book, like, you discuss, you know, kind of the stigma around like facial injuries and you know soldiers like isolating and you know, yeah. all, and the, and then throughout the book, there's like a lot of like things just about people yeah. with facial injuries. So, so yeah, could you could you talk a little bit about that because it, it kind of plays into why Gillies had to start doing what he did. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I like to say that this was a time that when losing a limb made you a hero, but losing a face made you a monster to the mm. society that was largely intolerant of these facial differences. So, you know, a lot of times these men were forced to sit on blue benches so that the public knew not to look at them. Um, it was a very isolating experience. And I would say that even today, you know, people, I, I worked with a disability activist on the language in this book. Um, she mm. has Cruzon syndrome and we wanted to make sure it was respectful. The word disfigured might not be used today, but I use it to describe these men because at the time society would have seen them as disfigured and, and they really faced a lot of prejudice and biases. Actually, anybody listening to the podcast might recognize the character Richard Harrow from Boardwalk Empire. He wore one of these World War I tin masks that were used to disguise the disfigurement for some of these soldiers because it was really hard for them to blend into society. And so what Gillies is able to do as a reconstructive surgeon working on their faces is not only restore their identities and their faces, but also to restore their broken spirits. Yeah, yeah, it was it was interesting uh, reading that because, uh, you know, I, I forgot which book I was reading, but I, I read about like the psychology of discussing, you touch on it a little bit, like there's like these these like natural triggers that the person might be diseased or something like that. So it's almost like this, right. this human reaction that we need to, you know, work against yeah. because it kind of evolved that way but um one of the stories that that really popped into mind too was in the last year or two it was whenever the new the newest james bond film came out right and there was a big yeah. conversation around hey like you guys keep making villains have these like yeah. disfigurements and i remember like other disability activists like yep. coming out and saying like hey can we kind of do something about this? Yeah, so, not um, my villain. I think there was like a hashtag, not 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 your villain was the the hashtag. And it's so true because think about it, Darth Vader, mm. Voldemort, um, Dr. Poison from Wonder Woman. 
Uh, you have Harvey Dent, who's really interesting because he becomes oh. evil after he's disfigured, but he's okay before the disfigurement and the burns happen. Joker, um, Blofeld, you know, I mean, just, the list goes on and on. Phantom of the Opera. I mean, there's so mm -hmm. many characters and it's a really lazy trope. And as you say that, it it, it goes back. It's it's not a conscious Today, it's not a conscious thing because mm -hmm. what it, it's really entrenched in this idea that disfigurement is associated with criminality and disease. So way mm. back in the past, you know, you might be disfigured purposely if you were a criminal. They might cut your nose off, for instance. Um, the other thing was that if you had diseases like syphilis, what happens in the last stages? I mean, nobody gets last stage syphilis anymore because you can cure it with antibiotics, not with Listerine. Um, <laughs> but but you can. Uh, what happens is you you develop something called saddle nose. So your nose caves into your face. Wow. It actually looks really like Voldemort. Mm. Um, and so this is associated in the past with morality, with with uh, your character. And in fact, attempts at early cosmetic or plastic surgery in these earlier periods was seen as almost sinful against God's will because he had he had marked your face. Yeah. Um, and so it is. So and there's other reasons why plastic surgery doesn't develop to the extent that it does until the 20th century. But that's certainly one of the reasons. And it's still in society today because that's why it's so easy in the James Bond uh, films to use disfigurement as that kind of nod to this person's evil. And even mm. our language. Right. You could you say someone takes something at face value mm -hmm. um, or they might be two faced or they might be, say a, a bald faced lie. So mm. all of these kinds of things in our language also signify how the face is really important to us even today. Yeah. So that, that was something I was uh, really wondering about as I was reading your book, like you talked about that kind of like a uh, uh, religious aspect and people seeing it as like immoral or uh, like just having the actual injury, like before Gillies would, you know, operate on yeah. and stuff like that. Like, how how does that connect like i'm not a religious person by any means but i'm wondering like is there something in the bible that like says like <laughs> hey if you're disfigured like you're awful or like yeah what, like what chris you're that? like where where is that in the bible like you're like flipping through it you're like where is that part yeah, but, um, yeah like it's not their fault like maybe it was god's will that they got this disfigured i don't right. i don't get it I mean, I can't like I, I can't I'm not a biblical scholar, so I can't yeah. pick uh, specifically, but guess? there is again in the medieval period, there is this idea of like leprosy and this is all connected to mm. morality and it's disfiguring and um, and it's God's way of showing us who to stay away from, so to speak. And so when you get to the First World War, it's again, it's not a conscious thing in society, but there's definitely that bias. And also you have to remember in the general public's defense, I suppose you could say it wasn't like they had a lot of exposure to this. You know, they didn't have television. They didn't have mm. the internet. And so today we're, we're lucky because we can see different kinds of faces and facial differences and we get exposed to this more. So it could be really shocking to see someone with this kind of, kind of injury, including to the soldier himself. And mm -hmm. so when they were evacuated back to Gillies Hospital back in Britain, he actually banned mirrors on his wards because he mm -hmm. didn't want the men to be shocked or to get frustrated with the reconstructive process, which could make you look worse before it makes you look better. But I have to say that, you know, although he meant well, it also continued to instill in these men they, they had this belief that they had faces that weren't worth looking at. So it could be really isolating. It could be very traumatic. Um, and, you know, there were there's stories in this book where fiancés break off engagements um, mm -hmm. or vice versa. And so what again, what Gillies was able to do was astonishing. But we have to remember that he is the product of facial bias in society, because arguably you wouldn't need someone like Harold Gillies if we could have accepted the disfigured face of these soldiers to begin with. Um, mm. Of course, you have you do have to restore function, like the ability to swallow and to yeah. eat stuff. But, but he was going way beyond that to aesthetically create the face so that it was acceptable by the standards of its day. So that, that's an interesting thing to keep in mind as you if you do pick up the face maker. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was one thing, uh, that chapter was called the mirrorless ward. And, and yeah, because, uh, you know, sometimes it's like multiple surgeries, they got to do all part by part and stuff like that. So now that we're in 2022, because that's another thing, like I've, I've never gone to like one of these wards or anything like that, but they show like someone like all wrapped in bandages. Right. Has that, is that still kind of like the thing today where they don't want patients to see themselves until that's such a good question. You know, I don't, I don't actually know what the process is to sort of revealing if someone's going through 
you know, extensive reconstruction. At the end of the book, I do hit upon face transplants, which are fascinating because for me, if Gillies uh, lived today, that would be something that he would have wanted to experiment with. Face transplants are interesting though, because they're both plastic, they belong to plastic surgery on some level, but they also belong to transplant plant science. And they are life enhancing, not life saving, because the, the amount of drugs that a person has to take so that the face isn't rejected actually ends up usually shortening their life, their lives. Mm. Um, so, you know, again, patients who choose to go through a face transplant, they're doing it for very personal reasons. Um, and it's it's it, incredible what they can do. You know, at the Cleveland Clinic, they do. They've done several of these surgeries and it, it really is extraordinary. Um, but in terms of, you know, people will ask me, well, plastic surgery is very different today, but you have to understand that plastic surgery, if you picture it as a heading, there's plastic surgery at the top and then underneath you have cosmetic surgery. And then you also have reconstructive surgery. Mm. And there are surgeons who continue to do both or some that specialize in one or the other. And they're both very important parts of plastic surgery and Gillies, who is the father of modern plastic surgery also after the war moved into the cosmetic realm as well. Yeah. So. So break that down for me real quick with the facial in, uh, transplants, because that's that's something that, you know, I I imagine, and maybe it's because it used to be one of my favorite movies. I imagine like the movie Face Off, oh, God, which, yeah. which it doesn't, it, I'm like, it I doesn't work like yeah, that. Or, <laughs> or even like, you know, in movies, like sometimes it makes it seem like you just take it. And then the, yeah, you know, yeah. Like, it, you could just swap face. I mean, if you think about it too, like the anatomy, everybody's anatomy underneath the the face the superficial aspect of the face is going to be different like your your skull is going to be shaped differently so yeah. even if you could do the face off kind of aspect like there's no way you would look like John Travolta or Nicolas Cage if you just like swapped faces because yeah. there's their bone structure would be different so you would look kind of like them but maybe not now with the face transplants today I'm not, I'm definitely not an expert member doctor Lindsay Viteris historian, not doctor yeah. who can save your life. <laughs> um, but, but from my understanding, a lot of times they could be partial. So maybe they're only taking, for mm. instance, from like the nose down, um, they could be full face transplant. Uh, I think the most extensive one was done a few years back where they actually harvested teeth and, and bone underneath, um, from, from the, uh, donor. So they can be extremely extensive or they could be, you know, kind of less extensive, but they are uh, very complicated. And there's a, a, a photo that won an award that I discussed in the book where these surgeons at the Cleveland Clinic, they spent you know something like 19 hours dissecting the face off the donor. And then it's laying on the operating table and they're all just staring at it before they transplant it onto the patient. And it, it is just such a, I can never stop thinking about that photo because it looks like a mask. It looks like a Halloween mask actually. It's uh, it's just amazing what they can do. And I think that in the moment it was it was solemn to them, too, that they were about to do this extraordinary full face transplant because they are so rare. They're, you know, not obviously not. Thankfully, there are a lot of patients that need that kind of extensive reconstructive work. Yeah. Yeah. So so you mentioned, uh, you know, part of the book came from like your interest, like trying to figure out, like, hey, what even started World War One? And you kind of dove down that rabbit <laughs> yeah. hole. So. So can you kind of like break down, like, you know, what, what was set the scene for us and how, you know, Gillies came into this idea of like, Hey, I want to help these people. And then like world war one kind of kicked things off for him. Right. Well, so Gillies is an ENT specialist, so he doesn't even, he's not a reconstructive surgeon. And although plastic surgery predates world war one, um, it's, it's not done to the extent that it is done than in World War One, And that's because just the sheer number of men requiring this kind of surgery grows because the weaponry, the artillery advances. In fact, a company of just 300 men in 1914 could deploy equivalent firepower as a 60,000 strong army in the Napoleonic Wars. Mm. We have the invention of flamethrowers at this time. We have the invention of tanks, which leave their crews susceptible to new kinds of injuries. We have chemical weapons. Um, you know, even as gas masks are being rushed to the Western Front, gas attacks become instantly synonymous with the savagery of the First World War. And it's true that the medical community was just startled by the sheer need for for patching these men up and then of course just the the challenges this is before antibiotics anesthesia is still pretty rudimentary at this time mm. which i discuss in the book so before the war is over 280,000 men from france germany and britain alone required some kind of facial reconstruction they were maimed they were burned they were gassed they were kicked in the face by horses i mean it the, the number was 
was crazy. And you can see behind me, I mean, the listeners can't see this, but I'll describe it. I have a, an actual Brody helmet um, mm. that was invented in late 1915. It was, it, you know, if you could picture the the World War One Tommy with that wide brimmed tin hat, that's essentially what it is. And these weren't invented until 1915. So they, so these men were sent out into the trenches with barely any protective gear. I mean, basically on a wing and a prayer. And so mm-hmm. they were sustaining these kinds of injuries. And even when the Brody helmet came about, I mean, you can see it doesn't really provide that much uh, protection at this stage. So Gillies it, um, comes across this kind of great need through this character who I absolutely love called Charles Vladier. He's this French-American dentist. He has a Rolls Royce that he retrofits with a dental chair and he <laughs> drives it to the front under a hail of bullets. I mean, this guy is a legend. He's a badass yeah. of World War One, And he he works for free the entire war on the mouths and jaws of these men who are injured. And um, Gillies comes into contact with him in France. And that's kind of the beginning of this story is, is what happens. And then Gilly goes back to Britain and he starts this hospital. Yeah. And, you know, looking at your helmet, which I can see, like, it doesn't seem like the helmets have changed like a ton. No. Right? So they probably, they, you know, what? it's quite heavy, actually. So probably the material uh, they use now is a little bit lighter. Also, I think that these, um, because of the material that these original ones were made of, they could shatter or splinter off. So if the guy next to you got hit, it could, the, the rim could uh, shear off and hit oh, you in the face, which oh, wow. wasn't a good situation. So although, again, they, they did provide some protection. I mean, a lot of these men, a lot of these men were boys, by the way. They were, you know, 15, 16 years old, lying about their age to get into the war. They didn't know what to expect. They thought they could just pop their head up over the trenches and, and just kind of, uh, you know, avoid the gunfire. And it was horrible. And it was a real learning curve for everybody involved, including just how to evacuate a man off. So the, the face maker begins right in the action with a soldier named Percy Clare getting hit in the face. And I wanted to drop the reader right there because I wanted them to understand how hard it was to get off the field. That was like the first challenge yeah. because the face is vascular. It looks horrible. It bleeds a lot. These uh, stretcher bearers, they were being shot at. So they were making instant decisions about who to save and who not to save. And a lot of times they just pass these guys by. Yeah. So, you know, that was, that was one thing I was just, you know, amazed by because like, the stories you had in this book. So here's what I need from you, because like I write every now and then <laughs> stuff like that. And, and you had such detailed stories of some of these soldiers and everything. So break that down for me. Like, what did the research look like? Like, where did you find all of this information? Like, I, I oh, can't it was horrible, to... Chris. Yeah. It was horrible. I so, never want to so... do it again. I, every time I finish writing a book, I'm like, that's it. I have nothing left in me. Like, this is it. I mean, the 20th century, too. I, I didn't. I was such an idiot because I I go where the story is. And I thought this is a story. But I hadn't thought about the difficulties of accessing patient files in the UK where I'm based. There's all kinds of laws about, you know, what you can and can't use in, in relation to some of these men's names, even though these men have been dead for a very long time. It's still very complicated. And of course, Mm. some of these people who are featured in the book have living relatives that remember them. So it does get a bit complicated. Um, But here's the thing about World War One. There's so much stuff. It's actually crippling. Like there's this is a time where people wrote diaries and letters and war poetry. You have the case notes of the surgeons. I mean, you just have so much material. And so a lot of what I do as as a a commercial writer is get rid of stuff. You know, Uh, as an academic historian, I would just be shoving everything in. It would be like this huge tome. You know, nobody wants to no general reader, I think, wants to like read something that heavy. And mm -hmm. so I try to find the pulse of the story. So I pick a handful of patients that I think, you know, really stood out to me. Their stories, you know, there's a pilot who um, was terribly burned and his fingers had no flesh on him and and he's playing the piano in the in the officer's waiting room. Like those kinds of things stand out to me as a storyteller. And so mm. I put that into the book. But a lot of what I do is just like getting rid of stuff. So when you ask the question of like, how do you find it? It's it's so much out. There. I mean, you can't avoid it. It's it like you should see my my bookshelves. I mean, I just have so much material from all of this um, and then condensing that down into a really pulse quickening story that hopefully will keep people turning the pages that's the real uh challenge yeah so are there are there like uh archives of like of these personal journals like are they on the internet do you go to the library like i don't even know like where these are 
stored or do you have to talk to other historians and all that? Yeah, this is this is where I I actually am a historian. So I, I kind of know how to do this to some extent. <laughs> I mean, one of the challenges was during the pandemic over here, everything shut down. You know, uh, I mean, we went through a severe lockdown where we couldn't even leave our houses or we would be fined. So it was hmm. it got kind of nutty. Um, and thank God for the archivists and librarians who have digitalized a lot of this stuff. So, yes, you can find some of it online. Um, Percy Clare's diary, Percy Clare is the soldier who gets hit in the face in the, in the prologue. His diary is at the Imperial War Museum. They have a ton of material. There are tons of letters. Um, I talk about the Battle of Jutland, which is one of the biggest naval battles uh, of, of World War I or ever even. And they have so many letters um, from the sailors about their experiences. And I mean, it's it's real. Like I said, it could take 20 years to write a book like this if you just kind of allowed yourself to just get sucked into it. Yeah. Um, and, and it took five years, which commercially speaking is is quite a long time. Like it's ideally your agent wants you like kind of having a nonfiction book come out every three years. Um, but I, I had to slow it down because, like I said, I didn't even know why World War One had really started. Everybody knows about Archduke Ferdinand. But, you know, it's it's just was so it's still mind boggling to me to think about how senseless this war actually was and the reasons yeah. for why it began. Um, but that's not what this book is about. It's not a definitive history of World War One or even military medicine. It's it's about this specific man in this specific moment and his patients. Yeah, yeah. No, I uh, I I'm not like a, a person who's like super into like war history. Even though like you know I have a lot of people in my audience who are always talking about those types of books and everything. But you know I did learn a little bit about the origins of World War One, and I think you did a phenomenal job. And <laughs> and this, did I get? I got it right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the story the story around how it started is just it's so strange to me. Right? There's like Crazy. goose and like mess ups and like oh bumps. my god. You yeah. know what it's like? It's it it would be like I don't know how it's it, you know people listening. You you probably know the Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated. But what was crazy was they shot at him. Or they or they threw a grenade and it it failed. They, he batted it. They think he batted it out of the convertible and it landed behind him. And anyway, the entourage drove off. And then later they get back in the same car. They go back the same route. They're not actually supposed to go the same route. The car stalls, and one of the assassins happens to be there with his gun, and he sh and he kills them. And that's World War One. Yeah. So it would be like is if if Kennedy, if Oswald had missed. And then Kennedy got back in the car like a couple hours later, went back the same way. And Oswald just happened to be hanging out there still. And, the, you know, I mean, it was it was so weird. And you can understand why people go, well, was it fated to happen? Like, it just felt like so many things converged to make World War One happen. It should never have happened. It was such a senseless war. But here we are. And then, of course, it fed into the reasons why World War Two happened. And it, mm -hmm. it's, it's such a defining conflict. Yeah, yeah. And then there were, what was like one of the assassins, like he tried to take a cyanide pill and it Yo, didn't yeah. work or something weird like that. It was yeah. like, it had like expired or something. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many weird moments. And then also the man who ends up actually shooting um, the Archduke, he had tuberculosis. So, and this is why he volunteered to do it because at the time TB was incurable. And so he knew he was going to die. And I think um, I, I'd have to check. And I, I talk about it in the book, but I think if memory serves me, he dies like a few days before the, the world, world War One ends. So he dies literally like right at the end of the war that he helped, you know, instigate. So it's such yeah. a it's such a weird and sad story. And there there was a lot of, you know, but again, the book wasn't really about that. But I, I had to like dig into it and I had to give people enough of a background, because, again, if you were like me and you didn't really know all these reasons, I yeah. felt like people needed to kind of understand why this started in the first place. Yeah, no, I think you did a great job, like keeping it concise for somebody like me. It's like, OK, give me the basics. Yeah, and all uh, yeah, that. Like, yeah. <laughs> Get onto the facial reconstruction. It's funny too, because like you read the book so many times while, I mean, at least I do as a writer, yeah. like at least a hundred times. And at one point I said to my husband, I was like, is it boring? Is the book boring? And he's like, you've become used to reading stories about men whose faces are being blown off. Like, I think people are going to find this interesting, but you know, you just get so like immune to this kind of horror that you're writing about. And um, but, but, you know, it's, it's just, I'm, I, it, to me, the purpose of this book was, it's not just about one man, the face maker, but it's about many men. And I really hope that yeah. I brought their voices out in this book too. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So obviously, uh, you, you know, Mary Roach, who was another guest on the podcast. And it was like that in the first oh, she's book I read, great. hers was, uh, stiff. My girlfriend introduced me to her, which led me to you and all these other things. But anyways, <laughs> uh, gore is something in the book, right? And I only yeah. recently 
got okay with like kind of gore. So let me, let me ask you as a writer, when you're mm-hmm. writing about these stories, like there are some stories in this yeah, book. There are. Uh, so what, what are you thinking as you're writing it? Like, are you like, I really want the reader to like visualize this or yeah. like, is a part of you and be honest with me, Lindsay, is a part of you like, I don't want to grow some out of it. Well, I think with the butchering art, that was a little bit true. I think tonally, the butchering art, you know, there was a story of of this surgeon in the 19th century who was known as the fastest knife in the West End, and he could take your leg off in under 30 seconds. And there's a story about how he accidentally cuts off this guy's testicle. And I mean, it was it was nuts in the 19th century. Like there was all kinds of weird shit happening. Um, but but with this, this was, you know, this was heavy. I mean, these yeah. men really suffered. And so I lean into the violence pretty heavily, but I also think that I wouldn't be doing them justice if I wasn't explaining mm. to people exactly what that was like. You know, I said in the prologue, there was a, there was a quote that I used that you could smell the front before you could see it. Yeah. And that kind of idea that there was so much death and decay as you, as you moved closer to the front and that they actually used the corpses sometimes structurally to prop up parts of the trenches. I mean, it became very callous because you were so, um, it, it, was, it was such a common thing to see somebody blown to pieces on the field. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you just adjust to that reality, but it was awful. And I wanted people to know what that smelled like and felt like. And, you know, what was that experience? And, and of course, you know, getting your jaw blown off, there's one guy named Private Walter Ashworth, and he get, gets hit in the face. He falls face forward and he lays on the field for three days during the Battle of the Somme mm-hmm. before he's picked up. I mean, he has no jaw. He can't even scream for help. He's finally taken off the field. And I, I really wanted people to feel that, to know how haunting that experience would have been. And he developed a lifelong fear of cockroaches and rats because the rats would make nests inside the dead bodies. And mm-hmm. it was just, it was a horrible, horrible, horrible time. And, you know, a lot of people who have interviewed me say, well, the good that came of it was all these medical advances, which is true. These have served us really well. But I did also come to the grim realization halfway through writing this book that these medical advances, as great as they were, actually prolonged the war because as doctors mm. and nurses got better at patching these men up, they were sending them right back to the front. So it was a real vicious cycle. Yeah. No, uh, that, that was, I, I think the way the book is structured is great because like, as I mentioned, like me just being interested in like, kind of like what was going on in the soldiers' minds and some of the stigma, the psychology of it all. Like when you, when you describe those things, like I think there was one part where you said like a nurse or someone thought there was like a black cloth over someone's face. Yes, that's and, right. One but, of the nurses. Yeah. yeah and it was and, just half his face was missing. Yeah. 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 And then the, and then the smells and all those things. So, so you did a great job. Those, those have stuck with me even though totally. I've never smelled those things I'm like oh yeah but yeah now but, I know I've been, I've been in the trenches with those guys I mean that's a huge compliment to me that you feel like it was it was so visceral and I and you know like I said I think with the butchering art my first book it was there was a bit of like a shock value and there yeah. was there was a there's an element of humor I think in 19th century surgery there should I mean there definitely wasn't for like the people experiencing it but yeah. there was kind of this bizarre showmanship that was going on in these operating theaters people bought tickets to see these operations but when when you get to World War One, I, I mean, there's just nothing funny about what's happening there. And I lean very heavily into the violence. And some people have called the book in early reviews an anti-war book. Some mm. people have said it's a book about heroes. And, you know, my job as a storyteller is to tell it how I think it should be told. But I'm so interested to see how people react to it. Like, is it a, is it a patriotic story or is it a story of, oh, my gosh, look what we did to these these poor men um and and i think everybody brings something to the table on how they're going to interpret the face maker yeah and and you know uh you bring that up uh, about how it actually like might have prolonged the war it's something i didn't even really think about because that's something they talk about with like sports right like right. they just patch people up and send them right back on the field and everything like yeah what what was like the the bar right like of an injury where they're like, okay, you're good. You're done. Yeah. Like where, where was that threshold? Like, did you come across anything? Like, I don't think this person should have gone back well, out there. The, the facial wounds could tend to get you a discharge. Um, there was a couple reasons. Number one, they were obviously horrific and they, they required generally extensive surgery that lasted several years. Um, but the other thing was that the army was quite nervous about the psychological impact that the facial injuries would have if they returned these men back to the trenches. You know, mm-hmm. it could be, it could really hit the morale seeing the disfigurement. But 
Um, they wore sometimes sent back. In fact, one of Gilly's patients that he spends quite a long time reconstructing gets sent back. And then later he gets killed and he's, he actually dies in the same casualty clearance station that he had been originally brought. He got shot in the knee and bled out. So it was frustrating, you know, as a doctor, his job should be first and foremost to the patient, but he was part of the army. And so he also had a duty to the army. And so it was finding that kind of balance of, you know, it, the man might be done functionally, like he can speak, he can, he could feed himself and all this stuff. So he should go back to the front. But of course, Gillies as a reconstructive surgeon wants to continue working on it to make the face actually look a lot aesthetically better. And in some cases, wasn't allowed to do that because they had to be discharged back to the front. And it, it was, mm. it was great. But the facial injuries themselves were one of few injuries that the British Army gave a full pension um, because it was deemed that awful. But it's interesting because, you know, if you have a facial injury, you could probably continue to work if you don't have no other injuries to your body. But that's how they viewed it. They viewed it as the worst of the worst. Um, And it was, you know, it was like destroying your manhood. And so, again, that goes back into the biases. Like we can argue that it maybe it wasn't the worst of the worst, that physically, you know, it, you were you could be fine. Mm. Um, but the, but the army did view that as, a, as such a terrible uh, wound to to receive that you got the full pension. Yeah, that's that's actually really interesting because uh, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but it's something I was just uh, reading about the other day. But now today in 2022, there's like this these debates and arguments uh oh a book i was uh reading was talking about the purple heart right because the purple heart is given to people who have been injured and some veterans were arguing that purple heart should go to people with ptsd a psychological injury but from what you're saying is back then they would give you a full pension if you got a facial injury Mm -hmm. because also the psychological damage but now like because it's part of like that whole like soldiers supposed to be tough and you know and all these other things so so why why do you think that 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 might be just your theory behind I mean, it, or is it maybe just different in America? I don't know. I mean, obviously, like, the, um, so in World War One, you get this um, concept of shell shock. That term comes about, which we would now call PTSD. Um, shell shock was this, the medical community didn't really understand what was happening. And so the idea was that the shell shock, it was literally um, the, the shock of the shells exploding would do something physiologically to a soldier and it would create these behavioral changes or, or issues. Um, and it became a real problem in World War I because obviously a lot of men all through the ranks, all the way up, um, and down the ranks were suffering from what they called shell shock. And so they were being transferred back to uh, Britain for help. But there wasn't much, again, there wasn't much understanding. And there was a real view in medicine that there had to be something physically, we yeah. need something physically needs to be. So that's why it was called shell shock, that something had actually physically happened inside your body because of these shells exploding. Um, but, you know, the, the psychological therapy in World War I wasn't really there. But these men in Gilly's hospital, they kind of receive it in a way because everybody has a facial wound. Yeah. And I talk about how inc- incredible this is, actually, because if you were at a different hospital and you had a facial wound, you might not feel you might feel self-conscious. You might not participate in any activities, whereas everybody at Gilly's hospital had it. So nobody really felt self-conscious in that sense. And he offered classes. You can learn languages. You can learn, you know, you can learn how to barber. You can learn how to farm chickens. There was all kinds of classes that were offered. And so there was a real emphasis on kind of rehabilitating these men back into society. And that really boded well in the end for them as well. They were able to assimilate back in. Um, But that's interesting. I didn't know that about the Purple Heart, this discussion that PTSD should officially uh, earn you a Purple Heart. I think that is true. I think that that should be. But um, I can't really speak with any expertise on that because I don't know much about the U.S. military. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's one of the things that uh, you know I I keep an eye eye on because like you're mentioning uh like uh so I'm in recovery I got sober ten years ago and twelve step mm-hmm. meetings like I found people who knew what I was going through and it was yeah. it was really weird so when you were talking about that in the book I'm like yeah that makes sense because right. you know you don't have to worry about like oh they don't get it and stuff like that and everything but um you find your people don't you and it it helps you kind of recover and i i think i mean there were definitely cases though where men in gilly's hospital just could never get over like they psychologically they were they were severely scarred and you know i i say in the book that not all wounds were created on the battlefield you know sometimes these men's fiancés broke it off actually ashworth who fell forward on the battlefield for three days his fiance breaks off the engagement but then her friend gets wind of this and starts writing letters to him 
and they end up falling in love and getting married, which is kind of a lovely little side story to that. But but a lot of these men, they their families, you know, had reactions that were really painful or they went back to old jobs and they were told to work in the back of, sh- of the shops because their faces might scare customers. Mm-hmm. And that was awful because they had, they'd experienced this terrible war and they'd served their country. And then, you know, to get that kind of reception. Um, so although the the atmosphere of the Queen's Hospital, I think, did help a lot of these men recover psychologically. I think, you know, it, in some ways, going back into society could still be a really painful process for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, like, we're talking about, you know, uh, the the different injuries and everything. Um, like, there was one, there was one part where you're talking about how, like, Gillies had to, like, use his imagination a lot. Can you, can you kind of explain that? Because there's so many different techniques that you oh describe gosh, yeah. in the book. And I'm like, I would have never Oh, thought. I was, I was, <laughs> yeah. I was right there. Actually, it's funny because I'm going on an interview after this and they had sent me questions beforehand and they want me to go into like really specific detail about skin grafting and flaps. And I'm like, oh my God, not a doctor. Yeah, <laughs> not that yeah. kind of doctor, you know? Um, it, Cause it gets really confusing. I actually hired, um, a surgeon to look over the language once I had finished the manuscript because I wanted to make sure it was all, you know, uh, correct. But yeah, not so although plastic surgery predated, you know, we talked about how even the I did I tell you that the term was coined in 1798 um, and it meant plastic at this time meant something that you could shape or mold. So in this case, a patient's Mm. skin or soft tissue, but it wasn't really being done on any kind of huge scale. So really Gillies is pushing this forward into the modern era. Um, and he had no textbooks really to teach him how to rebuild faces, especially to the extent. And you will see the photos in my book if you pick up a copy. And I mean, the the extent of these injuries are extraordinary. And this is before antibiotics. And so he's really doing this kind of blind. Now, one of the brilliant things about Gillies is he's number one, he's good at everything he does. So he's like a competent artist. He's a great golfer. That's he's mm-hmm. like a champion golfer. He's really good at everything he does. And he's very creative, which I think is unusual for uh, a doctor on some level. And this really bode well. And so he worked in a collaborative way. He brought artists on board. He brought um, dental technicians. He brought all kinds of people that worked together in a collaborative way to reconstruct someone's face. And that's really why his work stands out against other surgeons who were working in different countries on facial reconstruction as well at this time. Um, so yeah, he was, I would say he's, he's very creative because he really has to visualize how do you rebuild a face? My husband is a caricaturist, which seems like a really silly job, but <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we're both silly people on some level. Um, he actually works for a British TV show here called Spitting Image and they create all these crazy puppets and um, it, it's, it's inexplicable. Just Google it because it's so yeah. weird. A, a <laughs> no, I'm that down. <laughs> anyway, um, but, but he's really good at, um, faces and, and especially thinking about them in 3d. And so uh, occasionally when I would be reading these case notebooks, I would have to look and, um, I'd have to call him and I'd have to say, what is he doing? Like what, what's happening here? And so mm. he would take the words and kind of sketch it out for me. Cause it's so hard to think about, you know, if you move a flap from your forehead. So here's, here's something. So when you reconstruct a nose, you can do, so when you're reconstructing anything, you can use skin grafts, which are severed from the site entirely and then brought to a new site, or you can use a flap, which remains connected to a blood supply. Now, flaps are like the stake of plastic surgery. They're thick and they have a lot of tissue. And then a skin graft is like the thinly sliced deli meat. Okay. So Mm -hmm. that's like, so if someone's nose is completely blown off, you're going to need a flap. And one of the ways that they would do it that went back thousands of years is they would take a flap from the forehead and they would move it down over the nose. Well, I thought I asked a plastic surgeon, I said, well, what happens to the gap, you know, where the flap was taken, surely that's all disfigured. And he said that the skin on the face is very stretchy. So you could take other skin from the forehead, stretch it over and cover it up. Um, but that's generally, so they were moving all these like flaps, these stakes of tissue and skin to the areas that needed to be reconstructed. But he was doing this, like it was a lot of it was trial and error. Um, you know, sometimes it didn't go so well. There's a, there's a guy, um, named William Spreckley and he tries this new technique to build his nose. And at first, when he comes out of the operation, his Spreckley's nose is huge. And all the, all of Gilly's colleagues are laughing. They're like, it looks like an anteater snout. Like they couldn't believe it. I mean, it was so big. And then over time, as, as it began to heal, it actually looked great. I mean, he was, ended up being one of Gilly's star patients. So you didn't know until you did it. And, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of medicine is built on failure and trial and error. And, and this was certainly the case here. Yeah. So, you know, like what, I don't know, 
back then, like with the trial and error aspect and everything, like I'm thinking about both the doctor and the patient, like, do you think they struggled like ethically at all? Like, how did they, how did they find that balance? Like I am trying something yeah. on you. Like, did they have like deep conversations with them? Like, Hey, I have never done this before. Do you want me to take a <laughs> shot at it? You know, because yeah. it, it yeah. seems Do you want like me to it, it could go sideways really experiment easily. Experiment on your face. I mean, the thing is that, of course, like if you if you think about it, like you're in the moment, you have no jaw, you can't speak, you're probably oh, going to no. put your faith in, in someone. You know, Gilly's also, his attitude was so positive. He would say to these men, you know, don't worry, Sonny, you'll have a face as good as anybody before this is over. And they really believed him and yeah. he believed it. And this this all helped. But you know, in terms of the ethics, it's interesting because he had a, an artist that drew portraits of these men, which are really beautiful. He also took a lot of photos. And by inclusion of the photos, you know, there's an ethic, you know, like these men gave permission for these photos to be taken in 1914, but there was no concept of how they could be used later on. And that's yeah. why I wanted to really think about their inclusion and how, you know, we go forward and make sure that if I'm using those photos, I'm giving these men's backstory, you know, tons of information. So that's really contextualized. But, you know, you could make an, an argument that it's it's not appropriate to to publish them at all. I, I'm on the other side. I think, again, we shouldn't be putting these men on the blue benches in 2022. We need to look at them and, and grapple with the, the consequences of war. Um, but yeah, there were men who obviously they didn't want to go through long reconstructive uh, surgery, which could be painful. So they turned to the mask makers like the Richard Harrow character in Boardwalk Empire. Mm -hmm. um, and these masks are, are wonderful. I did a Twitter thread recently and they look amazing. But you have to remember that they look amazing in a still photograph. But if you were sitting across from a man wearing one of these it could be unsettling because they're it's not moving. It doesn't react like a face. Yeah. Which which in the end, I think, you know, it was that the fact that they were fragile, they didn't age, they um they could break very easily. Ultimately, a lot of these men did turn to surgical solutions, but some of them in the interim did use the masks to kind of cover their faces. And I like to remind people as well that the masks were not for these men. They were for the viewer. They were for the viewer's comfort. And we have to remember that because, again, yeah. they were really uncomfortable to wear. But the masks were... um were a way to to have a non-surgery. So if you if you were worried, you know, maybe I don't want to chance it. Um, but I think in the midst of war, everybody kind of knows there's a big experiment going on, right? Like if you're brought to the, you know, to a casualty clearing station and your life is on the line, your doctor is going to do whatever it, it can take. And, and this probably still applies to battlefield medicine. So um yeah, they probably understood that this that this was an experiment to some extent, but thankfully they were in the hands of such a good surgeon like Harold yeah. Gillies. Yeah, yeah, fortunately, and and it it, it reminds me too of uh, just like you know how it's more for the viewer. Uh, for for yeah. a little bit last year, I got into like books about like robots and trying to understand like like mm. you know all the ethics behind it. But they talk about the uncanny valley, right? Like yes, there's a certain yeah. level of like robots looking human but but our brain is just like something's a little bit off so when you're describing Ooh, like, it, yeah. how it doesn't age or it might not fit like 100 percent perfectly if you're like seeing it well that's why richard harrow is is so it's it, it is weird to see it on screen to see someone wearing a mask like that um but but when i post photos on instagram or twitter people go nuts because they do look realistic in just a still photo it yeah. you, sometimes you can't even tell that it's a mask but yeah, if you were speaking to the guy, it could be unsettling. There was a story I tell in The Face Maker where one of the guys wears a mask so he can go out to London for a day and um, it got really hot. And so he took his mask off and he would come back to the hospital and he would hold up one, two, three fingers to say how many people fainted or got upset looking at his face. And, mm -hmm. you know, so it so it, it was more comfortable not to wear the hot tin mask, let's face it, or the metal yeah. mask going in. But um, they did it so that they weren't stared at. And and that's quite sad commentary on society yeah. at the time. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, like going going back to like Gilly's kind of like doing, you know, trying new things. I, I'm curious, like, was there like like patients who were lost, like not even from like the injuries, but because of surgery went sideways? And if so, yeah. what was what was the percentage? Was it like super low or you know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, there definitely were failures. There's there's a guy um, in the story named um 
Henry Ralph Lumley, and he was a pilot who actually crashed his plane on graduation day. He never even made it into battle, which was really sad. The pilots at this time collectively called themselves the 20 minute club, the amount of time it took to shoot down one of their planes. Mm. I mean, this was insane. This was just years after the Wright brothers, you know, they would bring pistols up into these planes. I mean, it was just like the wild, wild west of, of yeah. um, warfare at this time. And so he was terribly burned um, and he didn't make it into Gilly's hands for about a year, at which point he had it had extensive scars. Um, and he was highly addicted to morphine because it was an extremely painful situation. Gillies came up with an operative plan and he Gillies said to him, I think that we should wait until you're in a better place health wise. And this man was so um he was so depressed and he just wanted a resolution. So he urged Gillies to operate sooner rather than later. So Gillies raises a skin flap from the chest and in the process, Lumley dies. His, his body is overwhelmed and he dies. And this was an important story to include because it taught Gillies an important lesson, which is never do today what you can reasonably put off till tomorrow. Um, and in plastic surgery, this is in reconstructive surgery, this is important. Also the fact that when rebuilding the face, you might have to do it in small increments rather than try to do it all at once, which can overwhelm the person's body. So it's important to include. Now, when I included his story, I decided not to have his injury and reconstructive photos in there because he does die in Gilly's care. I have a photo of him before he was injured in his uniform, and I have a um, photo of the surgical diagram that Gillies drew of, of what he had planned to do. But I didn't feel like it was right that we look at his body. Um, some people out there who've played a game called Bioshock might know that mm. the characters are based off Gillies patients. And there's a lot of weird mm. ethics, I think, there. Um, I mean, I, I'm open to that discussion. I, I once posted about this on Instagram and people, fans of Bioshock, said, well, this is the first time I came in contact with Gilly's patients. And it, it kind of sent me down a rabbit hole to learn more about yeah. him, which is obviously a good thing. But remember, these men never gave consent for any of that. And the way that their their image is used is, you know, could be ethic, ethically questionable. And that guy, Lumley, ends up in that game. And yeah. so, you know, you're talking to me and I'm saying, well, I don't even include his photos in the book, his injury photos, because I don't think it's right. So that's an interesting ongoing discussion as well as how you use images from medical history in pop culture. Yeah, no, that that is interesting. Like I bring a bunch of like moral philosophers on here because I think that all yeah. of that's really interesting to seeing how different people see it. But it almost reminds me of uh, all of the debates around like the true crime community. Right. Yes, like talking yeah. about like victims and things like that. And, you know, that that's, you know, a little bit different because some of it's like, oh, are you glorifying, you know, like serial killers or, yeah. you know, and, and, and I and, like, I consume a lot of like yeah. serial killer show. I mean, Netflix is my my warm blanket at night, you know, yeah. and but it does make you think about, you know, how this is presented and whether the victims are involved. I I prefer those shows where the victims families are involved on yeah. some level, like you feel like there's a little bit of that. But it's it's difficult. And, you know, people might say, well, Bioshock does it and you're kind of doing it in a way because you're putting it in a in a commercial book. And so I'm open to those debates. But I do think mm -hmm. we need to be very sensitive to the fact that these men certainly there was no concept of consent like that in yeah. 1914 when they were having these photos taken and then of course they, some of them meet very sad ends and then they end up in this video game without much context to who they are as real people and real heroes of, of world war one so yeah. yeah it's it's a it's a difficult line and it's one that i'm always you know towing as well because obviously newspapers are interviewing me right now they want access to images and mm. you know and it's to some extent i lose control of that but, you know, I urge them, for instance, to have like a, a sensitivity blur over over the online stuff just to make yeah. sure that it's all being handled in, in a pro. But but I do I go back to it. I do think I'm not on the in the camp where I think we shouldn't be engaging with this material because I do really think that we need to look at these men's faces. I think it's very important that we engage with that and with who they were and not be scared to to uh, look at the photos, even if they can make us uncomfortable, because yeah. these men have been hidden long enough. Yeah. And, you know, like, if nothing else, I'm glad that, you know, the listeners get to hear it because I think sometimes, you know, they just see something and then people yeah. get like really upset. But there's a lot of thought and consideration from hopefully ethical writers like yourself who are like <laughs> taking these things into consideration. Yeah. But but yeah. yeah, but yeah, it's not always so black and white and everything. And and, you know, I, I only have a little bit of your time and I got to ask you about this because it was an interesting part of the story that stuck out for me. But uh, speaking of like medical techniques, there was 
there was like a dog bone or something that was transplanted oh into somebody. Yeah. Can you describe it? Because they were like excommunicated oh, or something crazy. along those lines. Like I read that. I'm like, wait, what? I like, went back so you're one of my first it. interviews. So, so an interesting thing was when, when an author finishes his manuscript, it goes into production for a year. So I'm actually working on like my next book. And so I have to re-familiarize myself. It's like, yeah. I have to go back to my memory banks about this. But I remember it was an early um, transplant. And that's where they used animal bone. I think you're right from a dog to transplant into the face to reconstruct the nose and there was like this religious belief that you couldn't take like a part of an animal into the body and then by the time he the the patient actually decided he wanted it removed because of this reason and by that point the bone had already like assimilated into the face and there was no way to remove it so he just he got screwed on so many levels with that (laughs) that transplant but but yeah there were i mean in much earlier periods in a lot of the book isn't about this, but I do dip in a little bit into like the history of transplant surgery and the history of, of reconstructive surgery. And there was some wild experiments going on. I go a little bit into blood transfusion and how, yeah. you know, those advances come about, which also have some kind of crazy backstories where they're taking sheep and trying to transplant it into humans. And this is not a good idea, by the way, listeners. And um, yeah. they, so there was a lot of hard lessons in medical history. And actually, blood banking comes about in World War One because um, a doctor named Oswald Robertson uh, created these blood banks out of shell ca- empty shell casings. So that's another amazing medical advance that came out of World War I. But there are a lot of steps between, you know, learning how to, to transfuse blood, which is the first attempts happened, you know, five or 600 years earlier to, you know, where we are today with blood transfusions. Yeah, yeah. All that was really interesting because I'm not like, you know, into a bunch of like medical stuff and everything. I go to the yeah. doctor and I, I used to have a ton of medical issues back in the day, but yeah, it, yeah. it was interesting. That's probably why like, you're not into medical history. Right? You're like, yeah. I've had enough personal experience in the yeah. hospital. I don't, I don't need to be reading about it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, it's fascinating stuff. Just thinking about like the lack of technology and equipment, like, cause now like, yeah. you know, we, a lot of us have grown up with just like all yeah. these machines, like beeping and like people yeah. and all these, all these other things. But, I mean, on top of it, think about what trauma surgeons can do in the military as well. I mean, it's incredible yeah. what, what they I mean, they can save people's lives beyond what you could ever have imagined within a short, you know, night from 1917 to today. Let's let's call it 100 years just yeah. for a good round number. That's a lot of advances in, in battlefield medicine. So mm-hmm. it's extraordinary. I mean, again, I don't want to say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not like, thank God for war, because we've had all these great like I don't think that's the right tone. But certainly war has pushed a lot of these medical advances. Yeah. And that's ultimately what I wanted this book to be. Actually, there's a quote. Um, from a surgeon, I'm, I'm going to read it to you. It said, men who save life never get the same appreciation and reward whose business it is to destroy it. So I really hope that mm. the face maker remedies this in a small way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, with just another one or two questions, like Gillies, uh, you know, with all of the, you know, just the way he pushed this kind of this medicine forward and surgeries and all that, like, uh, what what do you think his thoughts are with? Because there's a lot of also debates around like the cosmetic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. aspect of it. Was that something that he saw happening? Did he have any? Because it kind of like I think you mentioned it, and maybe like in, in the in epilogue, the, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like it was kind of bubbling up. Like did did you? Yeah, did you have thoughts I mean, after about that and, I mean, basically after the war, he continues to operate on these men because, of course, again, the reconstructive process for for those kinds of injuries could last even over a decade. But he has to make a living and plastic surgery doesn't exist as a as a discipline as such. So he does move into the cosmetic realm. And there's really he's he's really a character. And there's some funny stories like there's a story about this woman who comes to him and she had paraffin wax injected into her face, which was a horrible idea Mm. back then because it migrates and gets lumpy. So he goes to correct it. And the husband is not happy because, again, with reconstructive surgery, it can look worse before it looks better. So he comes in with a gun and starts waving it at Gillies and threatening his life. And Gillies joked about this later, but I'm sure it was pretty terrifying in the moment. But he does move into the cosmetic realm. And he said that reconstructive surgery was about returning something to normalcy, whereas uh, cosmetic surgery was about surpassing the normal. And he loved those challenges. And he continued to do amazing work. He worked in World War II. He introduced his cousin, Archibald McIndoe, who listeners might know through the guinea pig club. These, this was a surgeon who reconstructed the burn soldiers of World War II. It was Gillies who introduced McIndoe to plastic surgery. Um, and he continued to work through World War II. 
1949, he did the first ever phalloplasty on a trans man named Michael Dillon, the first successful phalloplasty. So he was uh, progressive and and always Ooh. pushing the envelope surgically. And um, and, he, you know, he's worth he's worth worthy of knowing more about. And I felt like not enough people knew the name Harold Gillies. Yeah, yeah. Well, I learned a ton about him and I love it. So book Thank is you. coming out soon. So who who do you hope like what is what is your ideal reader? Who do you want to pick up this book? know anybody uh, I, I hope I, I really hope that you know people even people who like don't think don't like war history or don't like history I mm-hmm. hope that they'll find that the story is gripping I really want to get um the book to Gary Sinise do you remember him he's an actor yeah. in Forrest, Forrest Gump. Gump yep right and and apparently his role in that movie as a disabled veteran really changed his life and he's become a real champion yeah. of disabled veterans and I would love for for him to read the book and to and to actually get this book into the hands of you know veterans today and mm. and for them to enjoy it and read it and learn about these men from the past so but anybody, I, I hope anybody picks it up. And by the way, guys, I'm a freelance writer, so please do pick it up so I can continue writing. And my, my whole life depends on that. But um, I do hope that, you know, even if you don't like history, you'll find something valuable in the face maker. Yeah, yeah. No, I wrote this in my review that will be coming out on my weekly reading list oh, uh, next Thank week you. at the time of recording. this. But I, this is stuff that I never usually read. I'm like, all right, now I might be interested in score <laughs> of this. So that's I, great. I love yeah. it. This is stuff you never read. That's what I love to hear. So yeah. So so you might have you might have got me into a whole new genre. But yeah, great. Lizzie, thanks. Thank you so much. So for everybody listening right now, when does the book come out? And since you're writing and working on other stuff, where can they find you to keep up to date with everything? All right. So the book comes out on June 7th. I'm going to be going on a U.S. tour, so you can find me on Twitter under Dr. Lindsay Fitz. Um, Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris on Instagram, same with um, Facebook. I'll be starting in Washington, D.C. at Politics and Prose on June 7th and going to New York and East Coast and West Coast and Chicago and everywhere. They're good. I don't even know where I'm going to be. I'm going to be <laughs> everywhere signing books and talking to people and showing some of these images and and talking to you about World War One facial injuries. And my next book is called Sleuth Hound. I'm already working on it. Ooh. And it is about the 19th century surgeon, Joseph Bell, who was a medical detective and he was the real life inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. His student, Conan Doyle, based that off of him. So this is gonna be a real fun romp through Victorian forensics. So that will be the next project tackled. So hopefully I'll get to come back on, Chris, and talk to you about that one. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say, I am already hooked because that sounds <laughs> yeah, like my jam. So it's gonna be really fun. So. So yeah, Lizzie, thanks. Thanks again so much. And yeah, you'll be back home when the new book comes out. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lindsay Fitzharris. I I had an absolute blast. I've said it before, but like when I have a guest, when I have a guest who comes on uh, and I've never talked to him before, we just like kind of like click. I love it. I love it so much. And Lindsay is just a fantastic woman to talk to. And yeah, you know, it's funny. Here's a fun fact for all of you who stuck around for the whole episode. Uh, I was talking to Lindsay afterwards and I told her how nervous I was about this interview because I don't read these types of books. All right. So some of you, you're well aware of uh, the other podcast called Converging Dialogues from my man, Xavier. If you if you don't know about this podcast, go check it out. He has a lot of authors on. Uh, he's into a lot of different nonfiction topics than I am, but we do have some similar guests, but he takes a totally different route with his questions. Amazing podcast. But anyways, he is in the history book. So I actually like texted him. I'm like, hey, man, can we can we chat on the phone real quick? Because I have no idea what I'm going to do for this interview. But anyways, uh, it was kind of cool, you know, uh, because uh, Lindsay was telling me like, no, it was interesting because we took some different directions that she usually doesn't get in these interviews. So I hope all of you enjoyed it as well. Um, I have been getting really bored with books and topics lately. So I'm trying to broaden my horizons and dive into a bunch of different topics. So I'm super glad that uh, Lindsay was one of the first to come on and chat a little bit about history and how it, you know, is relevant today and all that kind of stuff. So anyways, make sure you head down to the description, make sure you're following Lindsay over on social media and get a copy of this book. If you're listening today, make sure you pre-order it. If you're listening to after uh, June 7th, grab a copy, but the book is out June 7th. Make sure you check it out. Super interesting book. I loved it so much. All right. But before I let you go, a few quick things. One, if you're new, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Two, 
If you're not yet, make sure you're following me over on social media at The Rewired Soul on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. I'm over on YouTube as well. And a few quick things you can do to help support the channel. The first two are absolutely free. And I know you love free stuff. So one, one way to support the, the podcast is share the episode. If you think others will find this interesting, share it out there. All right. Two, leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. This stuff really helps out with the algorithms and spreading the word and all that kind of stuff. All right. Um, but some other things you could do. One, uh, if you want to, there's a link down below for uh, my Substack. If you become a paid subscriber over there, it's only five bucks a month or $50 for the year. You get all these episodes a day early. And uh, the other thing you can do is head over to the rewiredsoul.com. I've written some books about mental health, addiction, recovery, stuff like that. So you can grab a copy of one of those. And finally, finally, uh, if you are interested in improving your mental health, as you probably realize by now, mental health is a big, big part of my life. There is an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's a service that I have personally used. I loved it. It's super convenient. It's affordable. You work with a licensed therapist. So if you're interested in checking that out, head down to the description, click on that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. All right. Anyways, another huge, huge thanks to Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris for coming on chatting about her brand new book, The Facemaker. Make sure you follow her, pre-order or buy yourself a copy. All right. And yeah, for the rest of you, I will see you next week with a brand new episode. I have some really cool, cool authors coming on to talk about some interesting topics. All right. But until then, have an amazing rest of your day and I'll see you next time.